0: I'm Alan Stolberg with Revival Cycles, and you're listening to the Ride & Talk podcast with Andy Dukes.
1: Thanks, Alan, and greetings to all of you out there. There are some amazing BMW builds that have taken shape in Alan's head and come to live in the Revival workshop, among them the awe-inspiring birdcage that showcased the big boxer engine prototype that would later find its way onto the R18. We're going to discuss a few of these builds later in this podcast, but first, let's meet the man himself and find out where it all began. Alan Stolberg, welcome to Ride and Talk. Great to have finally nailed you down as a guest slot on the show.
0: Thank you very much. Sorry I'm hard to pin down.
1: That's fine. It'll be worth it, I'm sure. But I'm really not sure where to start. We could spend a whole podcast and more even on any one of your builds. But I guess it's worth starting right at the beginning, or your early days at least. Who gave you your love of motorcycles and how
0: young were you when you first slung your leg over one? You're going to laugh. I just kind of got chills when you asked me that question, which I never do. It was my dad, right? Uh, Because I can channel myself right back to that moment um, at, at five years old that um um i first and it might have been earlier frankly my dad said that uh in diapers uh and i do remember this distinctly sitting on my dad's vintage triumph um that he had restored uh you know i say vintage it was you know it was only like from the 60s at that point and this would have been like a late 70s so maybe it was 10 years old but one that he'd bought wrecked and had uh modified and i can remember it sitting on the center stand and me sitting on the seat revving the throttle and the bike the smell i remember the smell and i remember the bike like shifting and shaking and moving around uh on the pavement so uh yeah it started then and then my first bike was when i was five years old where they bought me a little my brother and i a little honda monkey bike that we learned to ride on in a horse field and it was fantastic yeah addictive totally
1: Absolutely know what you're talking about, so did you also have a curiosity for how things worked and were put together you know right from a young age as well and and I guess also a desire to take them apart, modify, and even improve them
0: yeah i th- I did um you know I'm told from the very beginning that I was a a button pushing you know a kid who liked to use tools and take things apart um, um, but yeah, I do remember my some of my earliest curiosities regarding uh, well, a, we would get oftentimes get machines that were broken right as uh, to start with, so like my first motorcycle was a Honda, and that thing didn't break. Well, actually, I said take that back. My brother broke it the first day uh, by running it into a horse fence and cracking the headlight, which he'll never lift down my, my twin brother um because he didn't use the brakes which is uh, hysterical in and of itself but uh having to fashion the headlight back onto the motorcycle somehow so that i could continue riding it and feeling very crushed by the fact that my somewhat brand new uh, honda and it wasn't brand new but it was new enough and untouched had been damaged so having to fasten that back together and always looking at the fact that it was dented from there on out was tough uh, but also then later getting from uh, whether friends or my dad or whatever, my first dirt bike that was solely mine was broken when I got it, meaning the, the top end was seized on a two-stroke Suzuki the day I got it. So to, to ride it, you had to fix it. And I think that was it was a practical thing because we didn't have much money, but it was a smart thing for my dad to do because then I was determined to, to figure out a way to fix it. So, yeah, it started
1: early. Curiosity and frustration, two of the best uh, things you can leave your kids with. So even though you love bikes, you ended up following, uh, shall we say, a more conventional career path. I think you worked in tech or software, something like that, before having like a light bulb moment that this wasn't what you wanted from your life. So, what were the events that led up to you founding
0: Revival Cycles? Well, disenfranchisement, being completely disenfranchised with uh, with my career path or you know what I'd chosen was was the real moment. But you know, I did not i excelled in school until i got old enough to realize that it that it wasn't it was more of an abstract thing it wasn't really practical in high school is when i figured out that um i was bored <laughs> essentially and when i was told to go to college by my family i didn't really know why like i yes they told me why but i didn't understand i didn't feel why so I struggled through college, my all through my twenties before I finally, you know, I would job I would have a job and I worked a lot of different jobs in a lot of different sectors from finance to um, uh, marketing to even like heavy machinery. I did body work. I did lots of different things in my twenties, but I went back to school, finished my degree in business and finance, and then got a job working for a software company that I loved and it was the best job I'd ever had. Um, I got fired for. Um, saying the the wrong things to the wrong people, uh, but being truthful, but uh, certainly not playing the corporate game very well. And it sent me into a spiral because it was my favorite thing in the world. And I realized that I just couldn't have someone else in charge of what I was going to do. And I'm not trying to be meaningful or overly deep at all. It really was only in hindsight do I realize how desperate I was to make sure that I didn't have someone determining my destiny. I'm completely in control of it. I mean, you never really get away from that. You're still at the mercy of the markets or of clients or of trends or, you know, all sorts of things. Right. But I at least feel some level of control in my life. And that was what I was after. And so in 2008, uh, after I'd been um, fired, I got on my motorcycle, rode it to New York City, then flew with it to London, actually. Uh, rode all over Europe for seven months and um, decided to come back and get to work um, and start up a company called Revival. That was
1: nothing like a road trip to sort your head out.
0: Uh, yeah, you know, it was so cliche at the point, right? Like, And there were people in my family and people in my life that were like, you've lost it or maybe you never really had it. Um, uh, yeah, I'm not even being dramatic. Like it really was. I had some sit downs with some important people in my life that thought that I was running from my problems. And to me at the time, it was like the only thing I knew to run towards my problems, to get away from any influence that i had had in my life prior to that point. I mean, here, I was 30 years old, man. I wasn't a kid, you know, and I still needed to be alone. So, yeah, I formulated a plan and um, uh, talked to every single person I knew that could help me uh, uh, grasp how to move forward with that plan or change that plan, which I did a thousand times. But really, ultimately, it was just about getting to work accepting the fact that things were not going to be ideal from the get-go and working through problems one at a time to try to to build something
1: at that time what were your ambitions exactly i mean what did you want out of it or what did you think it might lead to and was it about more than just motorcycles
0: you know yeah it was definitely about i wanted to combine high-end design and taste um uh with building motorcycles right and to a degree, been, there were, at that point, I didn't know of any uh, custom motorcycle builder or motorcycle shop or anything like that that I thought combined um, sort of a tasteful cultural experience along with tasteful art and graphics. And, you know, like if, let's face it, a, a motorcycle company isn't much unless it's a brand right? Uh, You can you can build all the motorcycles you want, and call them motorcycle a and no one's really going to give a damn until that develops into a brand ethos. And so you could have motorcycle a if it was the coolest damn motorcycle in the world, that would then be a brand, right? Uh, And then you have to back that up with uh, events and cultural um, uh, iconic images and and content, all sorts of things to really turn that into something. So it you know, when I started the vision was, yeah, I want to build a brand but what is that brand going to be changed and evolved rapidly rapidly but you know when i discovered for instance when i discovered deus ex machina which was three years after i'd started i was so so mortified because like great someone else figured this out that if you combine great taste and great art with the motorcycle culture and content you know someone else got it and they beat me to it and then you know i'd get over that and then they like moved to the u.s and i was like oh god and then i met those guys and realized, you know, actually I'm going off a bit, but in truth, the part that has been the most powerful to help me move forward through the steps was meeting people that I thought were either superheroes or 3000 year light years ahead of me. And then finding out that in fact, they just had different situations, right? They, or they'd started a a slight bit before me. It wasn't that they were superheroes. They were just uh, normal guys like me who were just a few steps ahead. That's all.
1: So how confident were you in your abilities back then, though? I mean, how did you establish a reputation and actually build the brand?
0: Up to that point in my life, very, there was nothing that I had really, really tried to do that I wasn't able to complete. Um, I don't think a lot of people can say that um, with a straight face. But, you know, whatever I really applied myself to, I, 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 I got done. Right, except for relationships, that was impossible. Right, you couldn't navigate, <laughs> you couldn't you couldn't make a, a relationship work out. But but you could make a thing happen. Right, whether it be a you know a challenge of education or a mechanical thing, there was control you had over that, and you can you can even control how many times you get knocked down in, in, in anything and continue to stand up. You can control that, and so essentially, being determined to, to keep trying until and be tenacious to keep trying until something hit. Was, was my only real skill and I had confidence in that. So how did you teach yourself the skills in the first place to get going? To be fair, you have to understand that I've always been technical. I've always been decent with machines. I definitely understand machines and I understand how they work and the engineering behind them. My father's a very technical person and some of that carried into me. And I, I, when I was younger, not only fixing the broken motorcycles and broken things that I was given, but restoring old muscle cars with my dad and rebuilding engines and everything from the lawnmower to, you know, a race car really gave me confidence that I could conquer things. But I, I realized early on that I wasn't going to be a technical, um, you know, genius. That wasn't going to happen. So in 2010, 2011, I took on a a business partner who was an engineer, a mechanical engineer, and a gifted one at that. And, um, uh, relied on his technical expertise while he relied on my visual uh, design expertise, right? So I've always had a natural understanding, <laughs> you know, it, it's always subjective or objective. It, it's always up to the to the user, but I've always had a sense of what was beautiful and what wasn't, right? And yeah, that that skill is either in you or it isn't, I think, right? And that was something I just continued to try to build confidence in and competency in, and a technical understanding to a degree. But really, I'm not, definitely not a classically trained designer. So my expertise, without saying expertise, I hate saying that, it was design. was was seeing, I used to say shit from Shinola, seeing the good from the bad. And if you could do that, that's still a skill that not everybody has.
1: And I guess it depends who you're talking to, but how would you describe
0: yourself these days? Would you describe yourself as a designer or an engineer or an artist? A designer, yeah. And, you know, I, I took on that name before i really thought that i was if that makes sense like or that that title because it was my role in the company in truth um uh, in what i do on a day-to-day basis for the last 13 years i design two or three percent of the time and the other 97 percent of the time i'm running a business and running a company and trying to be strategic and fair and resolve conflict and issues and problems and whatnot. But uh, what I'm working towards, am I, oh, my, I, don't, I don't have an end goal. I have an end goal, and that is to continue to do something I love until I can't do it anymore. But my, my, my short-term goals and what I'm working towards right now is um, starting to come together, but that is letting someone else run the business and focusing on the creative aspects of, of projects and design, because that's what I really love. It's just easier said than done. Yeah,
1: not many people achieve that, but you got to have the dream, haven't you? So I'm not going to ask you how many builds you've done because it's never about quantity, of course, but would you say that there's a revival style that you've developed, like a signature that certain people in the scene could recognize?
0: I don't know that I'm qualified to answer that question because I'm too close to it. Um, I hope there is. I've been told that there is um, by people that I trust, that they see something, a common DNA in the things that, that I touch, but... Man, if you look at our body of work, to me, they're so widely varied that, you know, um, I would hope the only thing that ties them together is um, an obvious care for the details of of how things are executed. Um, Yeah, I don't know. You'd be more qualified as an outsider to tell me than, than I would. I'm not going to answer it either but
1: I am going to ask you a leading question and I apologize for it. I'm going to ask you if you're a fan of the BMW brand. But first of all, I'm going to ask you what the first BMW build was that you did.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay, so Yes, I'm a fan of the BMW brand, for sure. Um uh, the first BMW build that we did actually never really saw the light of day. <laughs> it did, but it didn't see the internet light of day. And and maybe it did later. Actually, it did by someone else. Um uh, my, one of my first guys that, that came here to work with me um, um, built a really cool old BMW chopper. It's still on Xf and it's shown on BikeXF. He built it, frankly, before he started here, and we helped him uh, to improve that bike. Uh, It has our title on it very clearly in the article. It says that he made it before he started working for Revival. So I can't really claim that bike. I still think it's cool as hell, even though that guy didn't like me much anymore. (laughs) I love that bike. Um, And then we did another, like a BMW cafe style bike that's out there that also didn't really we we parted ways before that was even publicly seen because there were so many problems with building that bike but i will say you know proudly that the design of that bike and the direction of that bike was before the BMW custom thing in my mind really kicked off right that this was in 2011 probably 2012 and back Just that long ago, 10 years ago, there weren't a lot of guys taking BMW bikes and turning them into customs. So we did that. We did a cafe-style bike, and we did a chopper-style bike. And then, you know, he did. And then um, our first, like, BMW, like, custom was the uh, Henné BMW, really, the one I will claim, which was inspired by the Henné bike. Uh, We did that in probably 2014 or something, maybe 15. Um, And that's, I think, what got uh, us on the radar of BMW corporate. They were like, oh, these guys like BMWs. And we, we did and do, and I have three or four BMWs. I've always been a fan of them. Uh, but we built that bi- bike as an homage to, to the Henné Landspeed bike. And I'm still proud of the way it looks. It's in the uh, Haas Museum in Dallas. Was it an R100-7? It was used as a base. Yeah, to begin with, the motor was, yeah. So, I mean,
1: the idea that formed in your head, where, where did that come from?
0: Easy, easy. I went to Wheels and Waves. Um, Whatever year that was, I could look back and find out like 2013 or 14. And I saw that bike in person, the bike that, you know, the, the ultimate evolution of what that bike became sitting on some pallets, just very precariously uh, uh, fashioned, uh, you know, like three or four feet off the ground, which is a good place to get a good level, I you know, level I look at, at a bike. Uh, among a bunch of crazy dancing European U- Europeans at like 2 or 3 a.m. A- a- at night. And me going and getting the BMW guys and going, okay, we're pulling this thing out of the room because I'm so nervous someone's going to knock it over. Uh, because I just – I had reverence for that bike. Design-wise, it just was – I mean, one of the sexiest-looking racing bikes ever built. Like so, so beautiful. And so it stuck in my brain. And then um, Mr. Haas approached me um, gosh, probably a year later and said he wanted to build his first custom motorcycle, like commission his first custom motorcycle. And I said, I really want to build an homage to that bike. And he said, okay, sounds good. He'd never heard of it. But, um, uh, he he said, sounds fine. So we did, we built it. And in fact, I have the frame to build another one. I I cut, I built two frames, but we never did. Anyway, my point is it was just, it was easy. It was so beautiful. And we we didn't, I can't say we improved on it. We just kind of refined it. Um, and we made the front end. We modernized the front suspension. And um, yeah, it, it's, I, it's funny. If you were in my office, you'd know that there's only one bike that is, there's there's only one photograph of one bike that I've ever built in my office, which is quite large. And it's that bike.
1: That's the only one. Yeah, I, I can understand why. It's, it's beautiful to look at. And like you say, it got you uh in the attention of the bods in Munich and, uh, and of course, the, the birdcage that followed that. I want to come back to the birdcage in a minute. But I just wanted to touch on some of the other BM builds that you've done because I recently saw a YouTube video of a, a beautiful R68 from the 1950s i think you acquired it in an auction now that's that's a a special and a rare bike i've never seen it in real life but i've maybe seen one in the museum in munich but apart from that only in books so but what i remember about that video you did about the restoration and, and you gave it a lot of love and attention but it was almost as if you felt a responsibility towards it and then of course you test rode it and you were genuinely amazed by its performance as well so i think that bike probably had a special place in your heart too
0: yeah, I, I think to be a vintage motorcycle lover, like a real lover of vintage motorcycles, not because it makes you look cool or because it's a neat thing or nifty or whatever, you have to be a historian and you have to look at the context of the of the time in which something was made. And an R68 looks an awful lot like an R69S or, you know, even later model bikes, some of the slash sixes even, like if you're not, you don't know what you're looking at, they look the same. But when you look at the time period when that bike was made, how much earlier it really was. And if you ride a bike of that period, this is a refined timepiece, right? It is so, so smooth and performs so well and has so much power. And the brakes work. I mean, the brakes work. That was a thing, right? At that point in time to have the brakes work, slow the thing down and, and feel confidence in that. That's a big thing. And then for it to still be beautiful and look like a sculpture, right? It doesn't look like an appliance at all. That bike is just heads and tails above so many machines for the period. But you have to have that context, right? Otherwise, it just looks like any of the other BMW vintage bikes that are sitting downstairs. And yeah, when I finally got the chance to ride, now I spotted it at auction, and um, told my client and friend, I was like, man, this, you know, not a lot of these come up. And then I we, we got a deal on that bike. It was so inexpensive. Because you can't, you know, at an auction, you can't start a motorcycle. You don't know how well it's been fettled. You, you really have no idea. But we brought it back and immediately it ran, right? And it started up and, and we, we got a good deal on it and then spent quite a bit of money and time to make it almost perfect. It's still around. It's still sitting just a few miles from here. And then riding it was almost transcendental. I really should have devoted more time and taking it off on location to ride it for that video. And maybe I will do a second video at some point. But. Yeah, sorry, I gush about it because it's a kick-ass motorcycle.
1: No, you don't see them really at shows, exhibitions, and you certainly don't people see people riding them. So I'm wondering if people are hiding them. I know there weren't that many produced in the
0: first place, were there? So No, I think, I can't remember now, but is it a thousand? or No, it's not that many. It's not that many. It's less than that. But to, to know that that machine would go 100 miles an hour, like... That's mind blowing and look that good. That's the part I still can't get over. The cases, the tank, the bodywork, the fenders, every single thing on it. It's so precisely designed and and put together. You have to remember that it was done with a piece of paper and a slide rule and experience and and excellence in in, uh, uh, fabrication, not with a computer where it's so easy to get those details. Right. I say so easy. It's still difficult, but you understand what I mean. Like to come up with a cohesive design is so much easier in a computer than it is uh, with talent, where raw talent.
1: And 70 odd years ago as well. Eh?
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: So sticking on the theme of performance just a minute, what was the inspiration for that S1000 r that you did a few years ago? Because that was dressed up in, you know, like old school endurance style bodywork. I, I really like
0: that. Like anything you create or, you know, are a part of creating. Um, you look at it and you see immediately the parts you regret that aren't right but that bike was definitely inspired by an endurance bike in the you know i would say 70s early 80s um that whole period the tail section still bothers me now understand the tail section as far as its craftsmanship and the bodywork on it it's still some of the best stuff we've ever done it's really tight the body lines are solid it is a really really nice machine but I wish that it hung down more, the tail section, to match the front, the bulbousness of the front. But that's neither here nor there. I, I, didn't, I didn't design that part. I let that part go and then later regretted that it didn't flow with it cohesively. But, yes, uh, that bike we built to go endurance racing with Kevin Schwantz, of all people. Uh, and uh, by the time we got it done... Kevin had some stuff with Suzuki and couldn't technically go on the track and we still take it to the track I've got a track day in a few weeks with that bike um, uh, so it's it was you know we rode it on the street I've got a great story about how it was how it was broken in by by Schwantz at the racetrack with us but um, uh, there was just an inspiration to, to take something that looks like a I, I don't know. That thing looks like an AR assault rifle, right? It's just so brutal. And although I love it, I know Ola. I, I love the way that bike looks from a modern perspective. It just it lacked some beauty, in my opinion. And I wanted it to be a little less um, like a machine, like a machine gun, a little more like a, a, a beautiful sculpture, right? So we we designed this aluminum bodywork. The best part about that bike, man, is taking it to to uh the track on track days and having all the bmw guys second look but they're not sure exactly what it is or pass them on the racetrack on this thing that you you, by the sound of it you're like oh, something's different about this motorcycle because it's open pipe right but uh still what a what an amazing scalpel of a machine on the racetrack
1: and what a talking point at the end of that first session when everyone sort of gets off their bikes and kind of like pulls off their helmets. And I guess that's, they, they start wandering over then, don't they?
0: Yeah, yeah. At, at Circuit of the Americas, there's, you know, on a track day there, there's probably like three, or 400 motorcycles. And all of them are modern sport bikes. Every single thing. there, was, There's like one vintage two-stroke bike there. Right? Everything else is a modern motorcycle because they're the best. And then this thing rocks up. And every, as you come through the through the pit lane, right, everyone's just like this, just looking at it like, what are these, these guys are crazy. <laughs> but then you ride it, and, or then you get out there, and it, yeah, it's doing 180 just like everybody else. Yeah, yeah, brave move to do it with the double R, absolutely. So- it's fun. That was a great project. BMW supported that project and just let us have carte blanche do what we wanted. So I'm so pleased to still have it here.
1: So the builds you do, are they always for clients or do you keep some of them for yourselves, you know, for display at events?
0: Yeah, some of them stay here. Some of them stay here. Um, I've been lucky enough to buy back one of the first original bikes that we built uh, from the client because uh, his his tastes changed or his his enthusiasm changed. It took us so long to make it at the beginning. Um, but the rest of the all the major custom builds have gone to either the manufacturer that, that commissioned the build or the client. Yeah, there's plenty of motorcycles here that we've we've made for ourselves, but those always get kind of like a 10% effort because we we can't afford. Frankly, I still can't afford to build one of the motorcycles that I build for clients. So well, someday. And how many have you got currently in the workshop then? Probably over 100.
1: Yeah. And how many of those are projects sort of still waiting to be started?
0: Well, you know, there's degrees of project, right? So <laughs> probably only four or five that are like, significant builds actually maybe it's three or four um and 30 to 40 uh, maybe 30 to 40 other projects like smaller level projects we're now much better about telling people that it's going to be a year or two before we even touch it you know Uh, finding the right talent with the right attitude that makes this still fun right because this is fun building motorcycles is fun is a difficult thing you know, and the company's ebbed and flowed over the years. My enthusiasm has not wavered for motorcycles and building motorcycles. But um, right now, we just hired another guy as a fabricator who we're really excited about and who's kind of fresh. But, you know, I'm less concerned with building custom motorcycles and more concerned with helping other people to do so at this point. That's been my focus is encouraging and inspiring other people to recognize that. I'm a normal guy. Everyone's ever worked here as a normal guy. You can build motorcycles, too. You can customize bikes. You can even learn how to machine and weld and metal shape. You can do all those things. You just have to be tenacious, and you have to be determined um, and, and, and take your wins incrementally as, as you as you work through the process, and you can do it, too, and find the same joy in it. So our business has uh, evolved into more supporting other builders with tech support and selling them the right parts, Uh, than anything else and trying to do more content and DIY videos but that's as you probably know a harder easier to say than it is to do
1: do you take on apprentices and you know what a cool apprenticeship that would be to have right you know so what a
0: day for you to ask that question Um, my first uh, he's not an apprentice We, we, we can't really afford apprentices by that I mean I don't like to have anybody here for free Right. Because if they're for typically if someone's not getting paid, then they're going to behave like they're not getting paid. Right. It's hard for, for you to do that. But so we do have a guy that started today. He graduated high school yesterday and he's working here today. Now, in truth, he's a friend of a friend. So he's got an inside scoop on how to get that done. Um uh, but he's downstairs building wiring kits, right? He's not. <laughs> he's not building motorcycles yet. But I'd seen his driveway where he was building a custom car, and he has a BMW. He has an R one hundred BMW or slash seven uh, at eighteen, so he qualifies as an ambitious young man. So he gets to work here and maybe sweep floors for a few years. But um, no, we don't. We we try to start with fresh people that have already got some talent in in uh, fabrication. Uh, Or, or, you know, uh, of some type and then encourage them, influence them and foster them in. Um, But that changes, man, it depends on the year you ask me that question. Right now, I'm putting my heart and soul into... Uh, empowering someone who's got real promise, and and we're hoping that he ends up uh, doing this, is fulfilling his potential. Yeah, fingers crossed for the new guy. I think that sounds brilliant. Oh, it's great! It's great having an eighteen-year-old in the shop and seeing his eyes on his first job ever. Just going back
1: to that um, Henna BMW Land Speeder, and you, you mentioned earlier that you thought it maybe put you on the map, or you know, kind of in front of the noses of some of our colleagues from Munich, when that talk of big boxer prototypes began to surface. I just wanted to know a little bit more about the background story about how those initial conversations began. That sort of led up to the birdcage.
0: Yeah, I, you know, I think, you know, I don't know if the stories I was fed were were were, were colored, you know, like if they were filled with things to antidotes to make them slightly more entertaining, but I, and I've probably added some color myself with over the years of my memory, but what I heard was it popped up on the internet. Someone at BMW went, well, what's this, who are these guys in Texas? What are, how are they capitalizing on our amazing history? And we're not right. Why are we not uh, showing this thing? Um, because, it yeah, it had been seen at Wheels and Ways, but man, the story of that bike wasn't, in my in my opinion, wasn't adequately told, right, and, and shared. Um, and I think that that got their attention that we had managed to, to kind of uh, garner some of the attention that that bike deserved. And then said, well, maybe these guys will be competent enough to take this new thing that we're investing, you know, millions of dollars in and all this time. And... Uh, turning it into something, a new vision, right? And so, yeah, they came to us came to us years before, but they couldn't tell me anything. They couldn't say a thing. It was all shielded, you know? It was like, we're working on something cool. And it's like, well, who isn't working on something cool? But we think it's up your alley, so stand by. And then I waited a couple years, right? <laughs> and then they came to us and said, okay, here's the deal. You know, you sign all these contracts and go through all this stuff to make sure you don't let the secret and the cat out of the bag. And it showed up, you know, actually the CAD rendering showed up before the motorcycle or before the parts pieces of it did. Uh, And immediately there was a challenge, which was, you know, how do I sink my teeth into this creatively and turn it into something I'm proud of? And yeah, there's a long story that could take 30 minutes to go further than that. That's
1: the problem with that. I just knew with this podcast, we'd just be scratching the surface. So we're going to have to come back for parts two, three, four, five, and six. But did you have... 100% creative freedom of this for the Revival Burk or or were there constraints, you know?
0: Legally speaking, I had creative freedom, right? Uh, the only thing that they requested was that I wasn't going to build anything that looked like the factory motorcycle, which was fair, it was fine. I didn't want to build anything that looked like that. So it was the excuse I needed to pull the plug on the factory design. Um, uh, and then I started to build something with a supercharger on it and they asked for an update and they found out I was going to put a supercharger on it and they weren't huge fans of that. At least that's what trickled down to me. So change course. Well, I was already months into, if not year into that design, you know, and for me, there always has to be a centerpiece of a, of anything you're going to do. There has to be one hook that lets you go, oh, this is a different application or this is a different material or this this shape is new. There has to be something, right? And for me, the hook was gonna be the supercharger because the original Henné bike that I had built had a supercharger, or at least eventually did. And that iteration with the supercharger to me was the sexiest one of the bunch. So I wanted to take the Henné concept inspired by Henné, build another motorcycle with that configuration because obviously the flat uh, twin was the same, um, but bigger, and, and turn it into something with like 200 and something horsepower um but i you know they didn't like that and i'll I'll be honest i I think it would have been harder to build that motorcycle anyway the way i wanted to do it so i had to reassess and so i like any good designer i procrastinated for seven weeks right while staring at what i was gonna be trying to decide what it was what it could be instead right and then yeah late one night i had two uh cocktails uh it was a friday night in the workshop by myself with really loud music and really dramatic lighting, a true story. Uh, a friend, a friend was upstairs sleeping on the couch in the workshop, and I woke him up after I'd come up with the concept to come downstairs and look at what I'd done. And he said, "It's great, you got it, it's perfect, right?" But, but, but two or three hours of him sleeping on my couch, I was in a zone. Uh, I got into the zone and came up with an idea that turned into the birdcage.
1: Was it the first time he'd worked with titanium, or?
0: Yeah, we'd never touched titanium before. Obviously, I understand the metallurgy to a degree, and it's lighter and strong and blah, blah, blah. But no, I'd seen birdcage uh, you know, frames in the Porsche and the Maserati, and I love that design element. That's so simple. I mean, it looks like a bridge. It doesn't look like anything. It's really difficult to make what ostensibly, yeah, is the triangulation of a bridge and trusses, and to make that elegant and beautiful. Right, so you're already fighting an uphill battle. So you have to use an interesting material with with a with a great um, hue to it. Really, the color of titanium after I anodized it and welded it, like it looks beautiful. But um, to take that to me was a challenge worth accepting. Right, to to try to turn a bridge into something beautiful and turn it into more sculptural. But also the element that if you can see through that, you know, the only assignment of the whole project with BMW was put this engine on display, make this engine the centerpiece of the design. Well, to me, at literal was make it so that it doesn't look like it has a frame. But so if you look at the birdcage, to me, if you don't see the beauty of the engine, it's because you're not looking, you can look right through the frame and see only the engine. And if you if you visually step back just a few inches, then you have a whole nother thing to look at, which is the frame, they stand alone as separate things, even though they're clearly attached to one another. So that's i think it's a difficult trick to pull off or maybe it's not maybe it's simplistic i don't know but we pulled it off and i think it it stands alone as something that most people thought a wasn't strong enough it wasn't going to run it you know it it can't function and it's way overbuilt it's way it's perfectly adequately strong enough for for anything i want to put on it Uh, it rides beautifully surprisingly it rides really really great um And yeah, I I took it to Jay Leno's a couple weeks ago, which isn't out yet, um, and and let him see it. And he wanted to ride it. And I was like, man, I don't know if you're... (laughs) There's a lot going on on this motorcycle. It's built for me. Uh, The the brake is on the left foot, right? The clutch is a hand clutch, it's a hand shift, and it's like, it's not a simplistic machine to drive, not to mention the the seating arrangement of it, because it was made to go straight and fast, you know, for two miles, which is, it's perfect for that. but yeah, I think the experience of it visually and the sound, I mean, it's the loudest motorcycle I've ever built. I think it came together. I'm really proud of it still. It's unfortunate that it didn't, because of COVID, it didn't get to go quite on the as many places it was going to go. It's about to leave here again for uh, or to go to uh, Goodwood.
1: There's a lot of people who still need to see it in the flesh. I mean, how long did your frame take to complete and how many individual
0: parts has it got on it? You know, I used to know this number. I think it's over 400 welds right? Um, it's 180-something pieces, I believe, of titanium. I can't remember now. It's been too long. And it took w- months. In truth, actually, let me back up. I think we built the bike in seven, to eight weeks, right? Now, we designed the motorcycle originally over the course of almost a year, right, as something else. And then when I had to reestablish a whole new thing, I already had Points in space, meaning I knew where I wanted the neck to be, I knew where the wheels were gonna be, I knew where the engine was going to sit. So I had it mocked up on the bench, floating in a jig, and it was like, okay, how do I connect these points to make this work out, right? How do I make all of this geometry come together and and, to, and hold it together? Which is how any motorcycle is built, but, you know, how do you do it in a beautiful way? But I, I think, I'm pretty sure, I could look back at my calendar, it was just seven and a half weeks of, of seven guys working, as many hours as they, did, they could in a day, seven days a week, right? And I, I told everybody, I'll give you a huge bonus, <laughs> but we have to do this. The challenge has been set. The gauntlet's been thrown. We need this to be ready for a hand-built show. Um, so we started on it. And, yeah, one guy uh, really did the bulk of, of the welding on the frame specifically. His one role in that, in that team was to weld these pieces together, and um, he took three weeks at least to weld it. So you know, in in what is a reasonable amount of time, if it was a full time gig, it would have taken months to do it. So, yeah, he did a great job. His name's Titanium. His name's Ty. I'd already called him Titanium. And he'd never welded titanium before. Then he started welding this, and now he's a titanium welding specialist, right? Like, he's a master, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I love the way that y- you just could not ignore that
1: beautiful frame. But somehow, as you were saying earlier, you could just see right through it to reveal that huge engine gearbox and drive. But what I really want to know is who saw the finished version of the birdcage first from
0: BMW, and what was their reaction? Timo and a few of his people were the first ones to see it, right? And I thought I saw Timo tear up. But I can't say for sure. I know that he was emotionally affected by it. But, yeah, so to finish the whole story about the birdcage, remember they said, "You, you know, you can't do the supercharger. Well, then I didn't show anybody anything after that. I was like, all right, well, I'm not showing anything else because I have to pick a point and I have to go with it. And I was afraid they weren't gonna like the telelever suspension, which is an obvious throwback to a different time with BMW, but they still use a telelever. So to me, that was modernizing this vintage thing. And it worked out perfectly with the birdcage idea, which was uh Chris Auerbach is a uh, uh our head engineer, and it was his idea to do the telever to make it work. And I was like, ah, it's perfect, right? It made it happen. Um so yeah, I think Tima was the first one to saw it, to see it. It was the day before Handbuilt Show started. Uh we had this press junket here and I didn't, it's not like I had a you know, blanket over it or anything. Like There wasn't some big reveal. It was just, let's walk inside and here's the motorcycle. And yeah, he was blown away. He was pretty excited.
1: And of course, you always knew that the R18 was coming. So as an American, do you feel that BMW has hit the right spot with the production bike? I mean, it's such a big market, of course, but not an easy one to break into.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the numbers speak for themselves. You know, yeah, there's been some (laughs) COVID has made some pretty significant changes in the demand for motorcycles, right? In general, motorcycles are in more demand, but they sold them. You know, they sold all they could, right? All they could make. So, I think I think they hit the mark, and I think that it's it's sold well. I think if BMW is happy with it, you know, it doesn't even matter, but. Yeah, anybody that rides it, that rides cruiser motorcycles, is saying the same thing, which is, hey, this thing feels perfect. And it's a BMW. It may sound cliche, but it's cliche for a reason, because it's true. They make fantastic machines.
1: And have any of your clients asked you to do a revival interpretation of their own R18s yet? Or could you see that happening?
0: Uh, I can see it happening. It hasn't happened yet. You know, there are not enough of them on the road yet, perhaps. But uh, what does it take? It just takes the right amount of crazy person to take this wonderful motorcycle that's really well done and decide he wants to ruin it by having me uh, customize it. (laughs) I'll do it. Sure, why not? So you mentioned that the
1: um, birdcage... Was unveiled, if you like, at the Handbuilt Motorcycle Show, and I think the uh, production version should have also been unveiled for the first time uh, at last year's Handbuilt Show. But of course, COVID scuppered those plans, didn't it? But I believe the show's going to be back in 2021. So, can you tell us about why you started the show concept and how it's developed over the years?
0: The handbuilt Show was something I actually conceived of long before revival. Right. I wasn't planning to enter the motorcycle business in any way, shape or form, but i had been to a few motorcycle events and, you know, I saw potential. Let's just say, yes, I was happy to be at a motorcycle show and to see vintage bikes and such, but I just thought it could be done better and it could be more inviting to outsiders. Right. That was my main thought. So in like back in the early 2000s, when I first when I got back into vintage motorcycles, which uh, was yeah, like 2004. Um, I wanted to make a show. Then, once I had a business and was entered the business, flash forward to you know forward like ten years, then I was like, well, maybe I should, you know, maybe I should have an event, and um, it 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 started off as well, you know, Austin's not a mecca of of motorcycles or uh, of cars at all, frankly. And when Circuit of the Americas was announced that they were going to build this world class Formula One and Moto GP track. It was amazing, right? I actually thought it was a joke for a couple months that and that wasn't real. And But as soon as I heard MotoGP was coming to town, I was like, all right, I'm going to launch an event. I'm going to do it MotoGP weekend. I'll have an international crowd of motorcycle lovers here. Let's introduce them to what you know the custom scene is like, whether it be garage builders or professional builders. Let's put them all into one room. And that was it. That was the conception. Uh, the, the first year, I partnered with some guys uh, from out of town and it, it, it did not go well at all. Yes, everyone showed up, it was a neat thing, but it was way more work um, than, than what it needed to be, and it wasn't, it wasn't the polished event I wanted it to be for the public. So this following year, when we went our own, decided we'd do it our way. Um, and yeah, the response was that people were inspired, and that families were coming, and that it was hitting people that weren't part of the motorcycle scene, and really seeing these things as, as the art and creative pieces that they were. And it's just developed from there.
1: Um, I wanted to ask you, because, I mean, it's your vision that the visitors to the hand Motorcycle Show will be inspired to pick up tools and use their hands to make something of their own. So do you ever hear stories of this having happened? And have you ever seen any of the results?
0: Yes. Yeah, really satisfying. Yeah. There have been a few guys, even even kids, like young young people, that have come to the show, never even considered that this is something they would be interested in or try or that they could do, and then done it right, and brought back cool custom, like, uh, small bikes, typically, right, their first bikes, but then uh, several, now one of them has done, I think, three since then, Uh, and he's continued to bring back bikes every year. Um, Man, one of those makes all of this worth it, and I'm not trying to be, you know, dramatic, like, literally feeling that I played a role in someone finding something new and creative and satisfying for them in any way, shape, or form, like, our team, inspiring them to do that is really... It's powerful, it's satisfying, uh, and it's helping keep us here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, apart from the show itself, what would you say is the best way for motorcycling fans to dip their toe into the world of customization? Because, I mean, where on earth do you start? From the outside, it can be seen as a little bit intimidating and maybe full of experts, but it is really one of the friendliest scenes out there, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it is. I I think the only way to start is to look at your motorcycle and think about how you would improve it. Right? What and whatever that means to you, it could be that you you want a sheepskin seat. That's your improvement. I don't know. Like it doesn't really matter if you want to paint the wheels white. Whatever it is you want to do, like there is something you can do to your machine that makes it better in your eyes, and that means that it's better, right? It doesn't have to be better by other people's standards, and it doesn't have to be complex. It doesn't have to be you know using a, a machine. Uh, to make the pieces to do it, it could just be buying aftermarket pieces or updating the things about it that you see is uh, lacking. And you know, from a factory, factory correct machine, it's something that comes straight off the factory line. Bikes like the R18 are so good off the line; it's hard to imagine, right, without a significant commitment improving that design. But if you're looking at bikes in the 70s, 80s, 90s. There's so much about those bikes that was a compromise and not only their mechanical and technical design and, and build, but um, even aesthetically, right? There's so many things about them to change that it's easy to start there and improve something like that and then get a new bike so you can just ride that one while you're working on the other one. But, yeah, I think uh, the, the way to start is just look at what you think you could improve little by little and step your way into uh, to more and more complex uh, projects.
1: Yeah. You strike me as someone who really loves and lives for what they do. So could you see yourself ever doing anything else or have you got enough projects to last this lifetime and the
0: next? I'll be honest, I'm always always thinking about what I'm going to do next, all right? So I I I hope that I never ever have to leave Revival and handle and Handbill, not all that. I know I hope I'm always a part of this world. But um I am f- contemplating more design projects for um larger larger markets and i don't mean just so i can make more money i mean that once you get the taste of satisfaction of of designing something for a niche market I, I like to say that revival's a niche of a niche of a niche right like we're maybe well known in the motorcycle world but that's in the custom part of the motorcycle world that is of this genre that is of this make that is of, like it's still pretty is still pretty esoteric and strange right we're eccentric bunch of dudes but uh, maybe we do neat things, but only when it's recognized, like when I go in public and I go to places when I'm not wearing a Himbelt show shirt and someone knows who I am, you know, that guy's a nerd, right? You automatically know this guy, <laughs> this guy is a true nerd for this thing. And then you're like, oh gosh, here it goes. I'm going to have to lay into this conversation because if they know me, that, that means that they're really in it. Um, but I'd like to work on things that are a little more generic. I'd like to, I'd like to design things that are, that more people can appreciate, right? That yes, you might be able to look at a motorcycle and see it's cool and you like it, but I want you to be able to own a piece of something that I've had a, an influence in, in designing and building. So I'm always thinking about that, to be honest. That isn't, that isn't some big announcement that's coming or anything like that. I, and I'm not teasing. It's that my brain is always thinking about uh, design and architecture and fabrication, always. There's no shutoff switch. No engine shutoff. <laughs> None. Yeah, it takes a lot for me to turn that off.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Alan, it's been a real pleasure talking with you today. And sorry that we've only scratched the surface of just a few of the builds that Revival has done. But fortunately, you are very good at documenting these and sharing the background stories with the community. So where's the best place that people can find out more details about what you're up to, basically?
0: Yeah, you could just go to our website, RevivalCycles.com. You can also go to our YouTube channel that gives you a bit more of a glimpse uh, into what we are, which is just Revival Cycles on YouTube. Our Instagram accounts for Handbuilt Show and for uh, Revival Cycles are super easy to find, Uh, um, and they give you a bit more of a glimpse. One of the things I've always tried to focus on is sharing the backside, right? There is no magic here. I want you to see all of it and see the, the trials, tribulations, the mistakes, all of it. So, yeah, the YouTube channel is something I'm really working on with, with the team right now to, to take the initiative to share more uh, DIY, more uh, instructional videos, and then, of course, just more about the projects we're working on. But, yeah, YouTube uh, and the website, we'll find, you'll find lots of things. And we're working on a whole new site that kind of puts that together in a more cohesive and smooth way.
1: Get that 18-year-old apprentice on the case with his uh, camera and editing skills and make it happen. Absolutely. That's great.
0: I hired a veteran.
1: I hired a 25-year-old web guy. You know, He's, he's been around the block a few times. <laughs> ancient. Positively ancient. Yeah, old guy. Superb. Well, listen, thanks once again for chatting with us, Alan. We look forward to the next creations from Revival. Bye for now. I right, appreciate it. Cheers, Alan. Great to hear some of those background stories and to learn that physical craftsmanship, skill, ingenuity, and creative design is well and truly alive and kicking within the Revival workshops. I don't have any exes that live in Texas, but I've sure got to get myself down there anyway to visit one of your hand-built motorcycle shows. And as for you listeners, let us know if you've been inspired to create and craft your own hand-built BMW. Perhaps we could feature your build on a future episode of Ride & Talk. Bye for now.